Thank you for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, and happy tip-off day, everyone. That's right, tonight, the Pistons tip off against the Toronto Raptors and the start of the 2016-17 season, the season that I and many contributors on Detroit Bad Boys have been previewing for you through this podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I also hope that you continue to support our podcast in the many ways that you, as a community member, can First, make sure to check out DetroitBadBoys.com, the SB Nation site that hosts our little podcast. And if you haven't yet, make sure to subscribe on iTunes, iTunes.com slash DetroitBadBoys. That's where you can subscribe and find all past episodes of the podcast. And while you're there, please rate our podcast and let us know what you think. The feedback is so appreciated, especially heading into a new season. And you can also give feedback on the Detroit Bad Boys podcast episodes in the comments. I always read the comments, and I love hearing from you guys every week. It makes doing this so much easier. And as I'm doing this right now, it's come to my attention that the Pistons, a little breaking news, have claimed Bino Udrig, if that's how you say his name, the backup point guard and journeyman extraordinaire at this point in his career, is joining the Pistons after they claimed him. Uh, He was recently waived, played in the last few seasons for the Grizzlies, for the Heat. He is secretly a decent player. That's what I can offer you about Bino. I think he is secretly decent, if not sneaky good at times, with certain aspects of his game. Very good corner three shooter, although his inconsistency as a three-point shooter has ranged pretty dramatically throughout his career. But there are certain aspects of his game, his passing, his vision, his basketball IQ, which I know is an intangible thing, but he is a smart player and plays well. It makes him sneaky good. It might not show up in the box score, but I think it's a good move for the Pistons. Another veteran that may give you some Steve Blake deja vu, but I promise you, I think you're going to like Bino a little bit more. And you're also going to like this podcast episode a whole lot more. I've got Sean Core, Ben Galker, two guys who just get into it. You're going to love this. As a Pistons fan, as a basketball fan, we really talk some serious basketball, and you're going to love this. It's a perfect preview for the season, no matter if you're listening before or after the first game of the season. Check this out and let me know what you think. Let's go to work. Recording this three days away from the start of the regular season for the Detroit Pistons. They will be tipping off against the Toronto Raptors on Wednesday evening. So whenever this gets into your brain, I want you to know that we are recording this Sunday with a lot of excitement about the start of the new NBA season. So to break down our season preview, what we're going to do is go position by position, talking about each player that's on the roster, uh, talking about some team expectations, our wins and losses, uh, and that's why I wanted to have Sean on. Especially with the player previews, I think you've done a great job, Sean, talking about certain players. So I wanted to bring that to the podcast to to give some people some idea about some of the newer faces and maybe what to expect from some of the players who we saw last season. So to start, we're going to talk about the point guard position. And right away, we have breaking news on this. If you have not heard, uh, Reggie Jackson will be missing the first few weeks of the regular season. Ben, we've mentioned this through the first few podcast previews that we've done, but now that we get to talk about the team, those first 20 games without Reggie Jackson, who is the pressure on to step up while Reggie is down, and then what do you think this means for the team once he returns? Well, I think overall it's it's bad news, and that it's just really disappointing because I think there's so much excitement, I think, in the in the state of Michigan, the city of Detroit. I think, you know, honestly, the obvious answer is one of those two point guards has to step up and do something more than they've done in their NBA career thus far because, um, you know, Ish Smith certainly has some valuable skills, but, you know, definitely not a starting caliber point guard at this point. And Ray McCallum, I mean, I think there's some question among some fans if he even really belongs in the rotation at all, and he'll be getting a big chunk of minutes. But to me... Uh, the guy who is kind of my X factor for the whole season is the guy I look at, and that's Tobias Harris, because I think he's the only other guy in the starting lineup, uh, other than Reggie Jackson when he's healthy, uh, who's really a ball handler and really someone who can get to the basket off the dribble. And so, you know, I think I was looking for him to take an increased role in the offense anyway, and I think that's a good thing. Um, but I think he's probably going to have to pick up even a little bit more of the slack and I think it might be interesting we can unpack this a little bit if they can even use him as the ball handler in the pick and roll a little bit to try to alleviate some of that pressure in terms of initiating the offense from um, Ish Smith and Ray McCollum, who, as I mentioned, are guys I, I just don't think are that great yet. So 
Yeah, big big load I think that Tobias is going to have to carry because 20 games is a long time. I mean, that's a quarter of the season, uh, and the Pistons are going to have to figure out a way to approach 500 basketball uh, in order to really make the playoffs, I think, in the East. So Tobias Harris, that's who I look at as a guy who's got to step up. Yeah, I think it's a good pick just because you're right. When we brought him in from Orlando, that was one of the strengths of his game was he could be a pick-and-roll ball handler. And seeing as that is the primary function of our offense, that Jackson drum and pick and roll, you're right. The pressure might be on him to at least have the ball more in his hands at the start of the season. Uh, But I want to go back to Ray McCallum. That's the other news that's come out of the last few days. Ray McCallum has earned the backup point guard spot over Lorenzo Brown. Uh, Lorenzo Brown may be returning to Grand Rapids at this point with rosters in the NBA filling and the deadline coming up soon. Uh, He could be looking at the D-League. So we have Ray McCallum. Sean, did you get to see any of him in the preseason? Uh, what do you think of his game, and what will he bring the Pistons? Well, I didn't get to see much, but just getting reaction from others and knowing his game a little bit and thinking about his battle with uh, Lorenzo for the backup spot, I think what he brings is a little better uh, shooting and a little better defense, but he's not the distributor that Lorenzo Brown was He's not the distributor, certainly, that Ish Smith is. And so as we go into the season, he's definitely uh, a Band-Aid. He's not, he's not anybody we're going to expect much from, from as a team. He's more somebody where you just hope that he can help run the second unit and make sure that any lead that has been built up doesn't get uh, pissed away, to be frank. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think he made the roster over Lorenzo Brown? Well, I think it's important to have an element of shooting. He has more NBA experience, and I think that's what Stan Van Gundy uh, banked on. He's a journeyman, sure, but he's played, I think, 2,800 NBA minutes, and that's not something Lorenzo Brown has ever done. So uh, I think just and just that little bit of defense that he can play, I think uh, that's going to be important because whether it was Brown or McCallum, I don't think – either would be someone you could expect to provide much offense. So any defense that can help uh, alleviate the pressure on that bench unit uh, is welcome. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We saw having Steve Blake, I think, well, I guess I'll ask the question, do you see Ray McCallum as an upgrade to Steve Blake? Oh, my God. So you're asking me, do I miss Steve Blake? And I'm going to have to say yes. (laughs) Oh, boy. This, This season's not starting out very well, is it? Well, no. well, sorry, Pistons fans, but we have that Christmas gift like we got last year, uh, right around Christmas, getting Brandon Jennings back. This Christmas, it will be Reggie Jackson returning. So, Yeah, I mean, certainly if you think about how Steve Blake played, especially at the beginning of the year when he was his most dreadful outside of the playoffs, um, what you're going to get from Ray McCallum is pretty much probably what the Pistons were able to get from Steve Blake, and that wasn't much, but... It is only to get through the first 20 games. Ish Smith played a lot of minutes last year. I think he can play a lot of minutes to start the season this year. So, And obviously, uh, Van Gundy showed last season that he was willing to ride his starters very heavy minutes. And so I think I think the, the calculus really has to be how much of a downgrade is uh, the starting point guard position from Reggie Jackson to Ish Smith. And I think... There's a lot of reasons that it's an obvious downgrade, and there's a lot of reasons to think that Ish Smith can sort of hold his own during that first quarter of the season. Yeah, and Ben, I'll turn to you uh, to focus on Ish Smith, the primary backup point guard who is now the starting back, uh, who is now the starting point guard. Uh, when you initially heard of the signing, I know we talked a bit about that on a previous podcast, but uh, from what you know about his game now after the preseason, what are the expectations for Ish Smith in a, a much larger role, probably averaging 30-plus minutes a game? Yeah, so I've, I've warmed to Ish Smith uh, over the course of the summer and, you know, watching a little bit of tape thanks to NBA.com, you know, fantastic video that's available to us now that wasn't available five years ago mm-hmm. even. But So I've warmed to him, and I, I think I was completely okay with him in the backup point guard role because I saw him as a little bit of a change of pace sort of point guard in the sense that I think he's probably a little bit better distributor uh, than Reggie. And I was looking forward to um, him getting out on the fast break a little bit with some of that second unit. And that, that sort of intrigued me and I was excited about that. Um, what I'm ultimately really nervous about though is he's not a good shooter. 
Uh, he's a, one of the worst shooters in the NBA last year, actually. It was one of the things I looked at when we first made that trade, or when we first acquired him via free agency, excuse me. And I think that poses problems for a pick-and-roll-based offense. I think ultimately defenses are just going to sag underneath the pick-and-roll if that's the route the Pistons choose to go with Ish. And I, it's one of the reasons I think they'll probably have to go with Tobias a little bit. And I think that creates problems for the rest of the offense because the offense is really predicated around Reggie with the ball in his hands and a pick-and-roll and guys spotting up and guys cutting and Dre diving to the basket. And I think, you know, you look at the rest of the starting unit, there's not much shooting around him. It's ultimately... Tobias, that's the only guy who's really much of a threat, and occasionally KCP. So I think there's real challenges. I think there's real challenges, especially on the offensive side of the ball, uh, because Reggie carries so much of that load, and Ish is just not that player. He's a he's an adequate backup point guard, uh, but he, he doesn't play it on offense the same way that Reggie does, and his shooting is really his shortcoming. So those are the things Van Gundy's going to have to scheme his way around uh, very creatively, I think, to have a productive offense. Yeah, I think it does put some pressure on Stan Van Gundy because the offense just cannot work the same way. Uh, even if Ish Smith improves as a shooter in the way that Reggie Jackson did when he came to Detroit, I think the emphasis, at least offensively, needs to needs to go to someone else. Uh, I'm not sure if it's going to be more post looks for Andre or maybe Tobias having the ball in his hands more, maybe KCP seeing it more. Um, But, Sean, I was going to ask you, with Ish Smith, is the idea that he will improve as a shooter coming to Detroit like Reggie, or is it that he makes everyone else around him better so it's okay if he's bad at shooting? Which one is it? Well, I think if you're Stan Van Gundy, you're expecting a little bit of both because... The one thing you can say about Ish is he's been in the league a long, long time, but he's got most of his run with Philadelphia, and they're terrible. So, And they have no shooters around him. So right. you can't really... I mean, he's a bad shooter, right? And if he improved by as much as Reggie Jackson improved from his OKC days to Detroit, if he improved by that percentage, he'd still be one of the worst shooters in the NBA. He's just, he's a bad shooter. So we can't pretend he's going to be good. But at the same time, uh, he might be better than he showed in Philly, only because he had so few open opportunities uh, at the basket in Philly. And you you can expect, as Ben said, players to sag off him a lot more and give him those open opportunities. So um, I'm not expecting him to be a good shooter. I'm not expecting him to be an even average shooter. But if he is slightly below average, then I think that's acceptable because of his passing ability and his speed and the other things he brings to the table. And I just want to jump in on one point there. The remarkable thing about Isha's shooting is that he's a terrible two-point shooter. Um, His three-point shooting for his career is also terrible. (laughs) But to me, what I look for with Ish is if he could shoot... If he could take three three pointers a game and make one of them more games than not, that might open up the pick and roll a little bit. And I, I think that's probably the best that we could hope for. If he can shoot thirty three percent from deep and he can take three ga- three three point attempts per game, then perhaps that's enough to warrant the defense playing him a little bit more as the ball handler in the pick and roll. And, you know, I'm not necessarily optimistic that that's going to happen, but to me that would be sort of the best case scenario. Yeah, and I think um, one thing you have to consider between Reggie versus Ish is Reggie, when given space, was a wizard at finishing in the lane. And that's not something necessarily that Ish is going to provide. But what he can do, and Ben sort of intimated this earlier, is he can find passing lanes even if the opening is very narrow. So if players play, if his defender plays off of him and they don't react quite as much as they would on a Reggie Jackson drive to the basket, he doesn't need as much space as Reggie does to find that open player. So even inside Stan Van Gundy's system, you know, I've learned never to doubt what he can do with point guards in that pick and roll, especially uh, players with the skill set that Reggie Jackson, Ish Smith, and a lot of his other point guards bring. So I th- I do think he still has the ability to be effective. And uh, thinking about him finishing at the basket, last year when he's in Philly, he's shot basically 53% in the restricted area, which is absolutely terrible. But 
he started the year off with uh, the Pelicans when they were injured and it was just a mash unit, but uh, still probably had a higher skill level than Philly, and he was able to shoot 59% at the basket with the Pelicans in about 600 minutes. So if he can do that in Detroit, I think that inability to shoot with any range whatsoever uh, is somewhat mitigated. Yeah, and a lot of that probably has to do with a little bit better supporting cast, maybe not getting challenged at the rim as often, probably as he was in Philadelphia, where you know he had the ball in his hand a lot, and I think teams knew they didn't have to defend because he just didn't have – there just weren't a lot of shooters around him in Philadelphia. So it could have just been the way he was defended, and you're right. In a better situation in Detroit, you would hope that number would, would increase uh, in Ish's game. One part of this game that I know hasn't been talked about a lot is on the defensive end. He's not an imposing person physically, but is still a player that puts a lot of pressure on the ball, and that's something that Stan Van likes out of his point guards. Uh, I think that's the place where we'll see a difference, at least I hope with Ish Smith, is on the defensive end over someone like Steve Blake, is if he's a better defensive point guard, that could help us. Because I know at times when we would see Steve Blake in the game, it just seemed like he was lost because he was just a step slow from some of the point guards he was up against. Uh, do you see any effect he has on the, on the defensive end, Sean? Or is, uh, or, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Do you see any effect he has on the defensive end? Yeah, I would say if we're thinking Ish Smith versus Steve Blake, essentially uh, Ish Smith's defense is the same difference to Steve Blake as Steve Blake's offense is to Ish Smith. So maybe it's a push overall. But he's obviously a much better defender, even if he's a much worse shooter. Uh, Steve Blake just did not have the athletic ability any longer to defend adequately at an NBA level last year. And it was pretty obvious, especially early in the season when he was just getting off that injury. So uh, he's certainly, he's much closer to Reggie Jackson on the defensive end than to Steve Blake. So that doesn't mean he's a good defender, certainly, but he's not a terrible defender. Hopefully this is getting Pistons fans really excited. So we're looking for him to be a, a hopefully below average shooter and better than Steve Blake on the defensive end. So that's what we're praying for well, right now. Okay, so I, I'll throw in some Kool-Aid into the mix just a little bit here. Perfect. Because uh, one thing that you saw in the early preseason, it was really ugly for Ish Smith and for many of the Pistons. Um, but once he figured out more of his teammates, once he got much more comfortable in that role as the lead point guard and knew where to find his teammates, which a lot of times it's, you know, that's your job as a point guard is to understand where your teammates on the floor want the ball, where you need to give it to them to be effective. He averaged something like um, six assists and less than one turnover in those final four preseason games. You know, it's just preseason, but as a distributor, he was extremely effective and he took very good care of the ball and that's, you know, exactly what you need out of a point guard. If we're really looking at for a silver lining here with the Reggie Jackson injury and what we can think about when he comes back is these first 20 games are going to force the team to not depend on Reggie Jackson because he's not going to be there. And they were so dependent on him last year. So this first 20 games is really going to force players to handle the ball that maybe wouldn't have. Uh, Stan Van Goody's going to need to find that secondary ball handler uh, beside Ish Smith because Ish just doesn't have the dominating ability with the ball in his hands of Reggie Jackson. So when he gets back, what you can hope for is that we won't see such a Reggie-dominated offense. He'll fit in with the teammates that have uh, become accustomed, if it's Tobias Harris or someone else, that can run that secondary pick-and-roll or be that secondary ball handler. And that way Reggie can uh, force the action when the opening is there and not just because that's basically the only way our offense works anymore. So, um, you know, maybe he misses the first 20 games, but you have the ability to see perhaps the most efficient Reggie Jackson season of his career without losing too much of his effectiveness. You're right. And I think where we may notice the loss of Reggie Jackson early in the season is in the fourth quarter. I'm sure fans have seen the stats about how many shots he takes and how many points he has in the fourth quarter. What players, and I think this is, again, another Stan Van Gundy test for this season. Uh, Ben, what players need to improve in the fourth quarter? What players do you see taking advantage when Reggie is out? 
Well, I've talked about Tobias, and I think that carries through to the fourth quarter, so I won't belabor that point too much. But one of the things I've been thinking a lot about is actually last year's preseason, and the reason I've been thinking about that is because Stanley Johnson, as a rookie in the preseason, looked like he could be a point-forward sort of player. Now, I think that mostly sort of disappeared in the regular season, and I think you know the, the level of defensive intensity uh, sort of exposed that he wasn't quite there yet. But I'm, I'm hopeful that, even if it's not this year, um, Stanley Johnson can emerge as a ball handler. And if he could, uh, I think maybe he could take some of that pressure off. Because that you're right to point out, that's one of the things that Reggie excelled at, was taking over games. And, you know, it was for better and for worse. Sometimes he shot us out of the game, but sometimes he was the, the single reason why the team was able to win in the fourth quarter. Um, but I think it's a problem, and I don't know that there's an easy solution. You look at our shooting guard rotation. You know, KCP is a guy who I really appreciate as a player, but so far he has not been a ball handler. He's almost been averse to handling the ball at times. And Reggie Bullock, another guy I'm excited about because I think he spaces the floor well and shoots well, but not at all a ball handler. So then the next guy I would bring up is Marcus Morris, and the reason I would bring him up is because um, he was able to shoulder a big big chunk of the go-to offense, especially before the Tobias trade, uh, Tobias Harris trade last year, and he did it a lot from the mid-post. So I think we might see some of that when we get down to crunch time. You know, am I excited about it? Eh, not necessarily, um, but it might be the best option the Pistons have uh, in some of those clutch situations where they would be normally going to Reggie. It's going to make the first 20 games very interesting, and as a Pistons fan, I think it's going to be frustrating for those 12 to 15 minutes a night that Ray McCallum is out there, and it will be even more frustrating in close late-game situations, those last six minutes, uh, and it is a great test for our coach, who, Ben, I know you're watching this season as we start to get a better idea of what type of coach he's going to be. Uh, but for now, let's move on to the wing positions. I'll start with Contavious Caldwell-Pope. KCP is entering a contract season and a very important season for him, not just because he's about to get paid, but also in terms of where he fits in this team's core. Uh, so, Ben, last year shooting 30% on close to five three-point attempts per game, that is clearly something that needs to get better. But because of what he can do on the defensive end, guarding ones, twos, and threes, at times guarding the best offensive player on a team, he's become very valuable to the Pistons. So what do you want to see from him this season? And if it's more of the same, are you okay with that? That question is tough. Um, there's a big part of me that is okay with that because defense matters. And KCP is literally the only guy on the perimeter that you could even think about being a real stopper. Uh, you know, Reggie's defensive game is, I think, his major shortcoming. I like Marcus Morris. I think he's an adequate defender. I would say in certain matchups, he's probably above average. But he can't shut down twos, right? Uh, I think the thing about KCP's defense that I like the most is his versatility. I think, you know, we talked a little bit last season about him sort of being the Steph Curry stopper. He was able to just harass Steph and take Steph completely out of his game. And, you know, he's able to guard positions one, two, and sometimes three, depending on matchups. So on that side of the ball, yeah, I'm okay with it. Um, but then the second part of that question for me is okay with it at what price? And, and to me... KCP's offense, you know, just has not been good enough to warrant a big payday. I, I honestly don't think he has established that he is a starting caliber point guard on a playoff team, or excuse me, shooting guard, on a playoff team that's serious about making the conference finals. I think his offense has been significantly lagging where a lot of us expected to be. And I've talked about this before. His, his improvement over time at Georgia suggested to me that his first season and even his first two seasons weren't anything to really worry about because he demonstrated the ability to improve over time and we know about his work ethic and all of those things. But, you know, ultimately his, his progress on the offensive side of the ball has been really, really slow. And as you mentioned, 30% three-point shooting, that's not going to get it done in a Stan Van Gundy system, in my opinion. So... Uh, to me, KCP's got to do one of two things on the offensive side of the ball. He's either got to prove that he can be a reliable three-point shooter, even if that just means a corner three guy, I think that would be okay, or he's got to do something which he hasn't done much of at all, which is be able to put the ball on the floor and get to the basket and, and 
really KCP has almost been averse to that at times. Um, so to me, it's all about the offense. If the Pistons want to pay him like they're going to pay a starter in today's cap, in today's salary cap, he's really got to do more on offense to show that, that that's a justified decision. Otherwise, you know, I think that would be really hard. The, the other thing to consider is that the Pistons are, I think, in the top five in terms of their salary totals going into this season. So I know Gores is willing to pay a lot of money. He's willing to pay the luxury tax. But, you know, are you going to pay KCP 12 to $15 million a year, uh, which is going to be what a shooting guard demands in this market? You know, I, I'm just not sure he's justified that yet. Sean, what do you think? Is he justified getting a max contract or close to max money? So the Pistons have to decide if they're going to be the ones that are going to pay him because somebody's going to give him that deal. The, there's too much money floating around. The salary cap's still going up. He's proven too good of a defender with you know youth on his side, and I think maybe his offensive game is a little overrated in the NBA. Um, but my big take on KCP would be that uh, the decision on whether to bring him back and pay him this major money he's going to get is some, somewhat less reliant on KCP the player and more reliant on what happens with the team around him. So if the Pistons improve their defense at the point guard position with Reggie taking it uh, a step forward and, and Andre Drummond taking it a step forward, then maybe that allows Stan Van Gundy to say, I don't need KCP as my one defensive stopper, my security blanket, and we can move on from him. Conversely, uh, if the Pistons suddenly decide they want to start making three-pointers, uh, at the point guard position, the small forward position, um, more from the power forward position, then you can say, okay, well, I don't need KCP to provide that much offense. And so I can bring him back as one of the you know best defenders in the NBA and just give him those uh, basket cut buckets, those transition buckets, because he can still do that. Uh, but if they if they don't get any shooting out of those other positions, I think it becomes a very hard decision to on whether to bring him back or not, because it just doesn't look like he's going to develop that reliable three-point shot. It's not for a lack of trying. At least, I'm not sure <laughs> if I give him credit, but shooting close to five threes a game and shooting at just a, you know close to 31% from three-point range, uh, you know the, the team as a whole is average, and actually last year, 22nd in the league in three-point percentage. I would have to think that's a position Stan Van Gundy would want to see more consistent offensive production. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm looking at some players that Stan Van's actually had in the past at that two spot. Someone like maybe J.J. Redick. Is that a better fit, even for what we would lose on the defensive end, Ben? Would you rather just see a shooter in that spot? Well, I'm actually a fan of J.J. Redick, so I'm, <laughs> I'm probably a little bit biased. I mean, a J.J. Redick-type player, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Um, I, I think that's a pretty poor defensive backcourt. <laughs> So if Andre Drummond can emerge as sort of an anchor, maybe I'm a little more comfortable with the J.J. Redick archetype. But I think J.J. was very good offensively, and I think he's he's proved that there's a there's still room for guys like him in the NBA. I think he benefits from having Chris Paul and Blake Griffin uh, just a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean I'd be okay with that. But at the same time, it depends on it depends on the price too. I mean. All things considered, KCP is probably going to make $15 million a year or somewhere close to that because, as Sean pointed out, there's going to be a ton of money flying around with the cap increasing with teams saving and striking out in free agency. So someone's going to want to pay a guy like KCP who he did score 14.5 points a game last year. I mean, and, and points per game still matter in terms of the NBA decision-making process. So somebody's going to pay him. Um, am I correct, guys? He's going to be a restricted free agent going into the summer. That is that correct? Yeah. So they can choose to try to extend him or they can choose to make him a restricted free agent. And I've got to think they would make him a restricted free agent um, and, and see what the market decides he's worth. Yeah. yeah and that... Oh, sorry. I was just no, going to go say, ahead, um, Ben diagnosed his game perfectly, I think, as far as what he would need to improve. But I also think there's a third option and that's to just shoot the ball less. <laughs> I mean, he's he's attempting over 12 shots a game. That was fourth on the team last year, and he just doesn't make very many. If he limited his shooting to maybe 
eight shots a game, and they were those great wide-open looks that he's going to hit more often, then I think the efficiency goes up, the shots get redistributed to other players, like maybe Tobias Harris takes a little more of the offensive load, maybe you give it a little more to Marcus Morris. Uh, that's fine. I mean, because he's going to bring that top-level defense. He doesn't need to shoot that much, but I think at the same time, Stan Van Gundy's still in the mode of letting the players on his team uh, grow into roles and maybe try things out of their comfort zone to force them to do things they're not very good at. And he knows for that for KCP to reach his full potential, he needs to have the chance to to make all these shots that he's been taking. If the ultimate answer is, I don't think he's ever going to get there, then Stan Van Gundy's got to either say, you can't shoot the ball as much, or he's got to move on from him. I wouldn't be shocked if, you know, Stan Van Gundy's famously made some major team-altering trades uh, in his two years with the Pistons, and if he was going to trade anybody on the team, I think it would probably be Contavious Caldwell-Pope for a major return. Mm. to a team that's willing to, knowing his game, wants to control his restricted free agency and wants to lock him lock him up long term. I'm not saying it's likely to happen, but I would say if anybody gets traded on this team in a major deal, it's going to be Contavious Caldwell-Pope. That's interesting. And it's just that restricted free agency being so valuable, is that, is that why? Well, I think he's a valuable player to a lot of teams. Sure. I just don't know if he his lack of shooting is sort of exacerbating an existing flaw in this team, which is a lack of shooting. You know, it's yeah. it's strange to think that Stan Van Gundy has built this team up. You think of him, uh, the four-out, one-in offensive system he built in Orlando was predicated on all these three-point shooters. He doesn't have many three-point shooters in Detroit. He doesn't have very good shooting in Detroit right now. He wants the players here to get better, and he's, you know, worked around the edges but he's just focused on major talent upgrades. So he brought in Reggie Jackson, even though he's not a great three-point shooter. He brought in Tobias Harris, even though historically he's not a great three-point shooter. So if he's not going to surround uh, you know, Andre Drummond with a bunch of great three-point shooters, then he might need more out of that shooting guard position. And he might just not be able to afford the offensive drop-off to bring back Contavious Caldwell-Pope, as great as his defense has been. Right. Ben, I, we've talked a bit about trades for the Pistons this season, uh, and we've always looked at the smaller moves. Uh, if, if it's a bigger move, do you agree with Sean that it's it's KCP? I agree, but it would have to be a package because KCP is only making only $3.7 million next season. And the challenge is you can only bring back what you send out. So that's the trick about trading rookies. Unless you're exchanging rookies, it, it's hard to bring back something significant by trading a rookie just because that's how the CBA works. It's so restrictive in terms of, you know, with I think it's 125%, you have to be able to match in terms of incoming outgoing salary. So maybe KCP plus Aaron Baines and a swap of draft picks or something like that. I still think Baines is a likely candidate to be traded, as we've talked a little bit about in the past. Those two players together get you $10 million in salary to, to swap around. Um, so maybe that's enough to bring in a significant rotation piece. But, yeah, I mean, the, the rookie contract is the challenge with, with moving him at this point. It almost makes him a better asset in a sign-in trade than a trade now. Um, and, and that gets a little bit toward the value of a, a team receiving KCP is the right to re- control restrictive fee agency. But it's a little bit different in a sign-in trade as well. Right. I think the Pistons could have a little more leverage in a sign-in trade deal and could see a, a better return uh, but, Sean, I, I think I, I agree that if, if it is a, a move that's changing the starting lineup, it's probably at that, that two it's, – it, it's at the wing spot. And if it's for a big-name player, it's probably involving KCP, that type of player behind KCP in the rotation. Uh, we have Reggie Bullock, Darren Hilliard, Michael Benege. Uh Are any of those players long-term options? I know with – with Hilliard and with Benajay, we have second-round picks. Uh, Bullock was someone we, we picked up last season. Uh, either of those players long-term options, or are those backups, Sean? I think that Reggie Bullock has an, a chance to be a long-term option. He's kind of the player we've been kind of describing, where you're getting that ace three-point shooting possibility, 
with passable defense where you're not going to lose much at that spot. So he's certainly not at KCP's level, but he's not at Steve Blake's level, let's say. So, And there has been indication that the Pistons were interested in signing him to a multi-year deal. Uh, so I definitely think he's somebody that can make an impact. He's definitely, I think, a major rotation piece this year and could be a long-term piece at that shooting guard small forward spot for the Pistons as they continue to grow. Yeah, and he's the only player that got legitimate minutes last year that uh, shot you know around 40%. So I, I think there's some value there as well. It's just a three-point shooter. Uh, ben, do you see Reggie Bullock? It, it seems that he is that, that backup too and will has already carved out a role in the rotation. Uh, do you see him with a long-term spot with the Pistons? I like him as a long-term option if his shooting is a legit, if he's a legit 40% three-point shooter. Um, I think there's reasons to think that he really is that good of a shooter. When you look at his career numbers, his rookie season brings down his career average quite a bit, and I think there's reasons to believe it's a genuine improvement and not just you know random noise in mm-hmm. the numbers. I think you know it's an obvious trade-off. Reggie gives you the offense, and KCP gives you the defense. So to me, if Reggie Bullock is an average defender, then maybe he is an option if things don't work out long term with KCP. But if I, you know, if I were thinking about, you know, who's your core shooting guard, you know, who's your st- starting shooting guard for the next three to five years, Reggie Bullock would not be the first guy I think of. I, I really do sort of think of him more as a uh, backup swingman who can play either spot depending on matchups, and you know, he's maybe your seventh guy in the rotation. Um, but I think he's going to have a chance to prove exactly the sort of defender he is because I do expect him to get a good chunk of minutes this year if for no other reason than he's one of the very very few guys on the roster who can shoot the ball. So to me, that's the question. How good is his defense? And if it's average or thereabouts, um, then I think he's sort of your safety blanket if things don't work out with KCP the way you want them to. Right, and I think that's because his game is at least a little farther along than some of the other players I mentioned. Ben, like you said, if we maybe allow the market to dictate and someone throws out a three- or four-year deal for uh, KCP, maybe one of these younger players steps up and the next few years uh, to allow us to find an upgrade there. Uh, So let's move on to the forwards. Uh, And I'll start with the two starters, Marcus Morris and Tobias Harris, because they do seem to be somewhat interchangeable. We've got two combo forwards, uh, Tobias Harris coming in the trade last season from Orlando, Marcus Morris, the previous off season, a great trade uh, with Phoenix that really worked out for the Pistons. Which of those players, Ben, for this season, do you see to be more valuable and why? By a pretty wide margin, I think Tobias Harris is more important. I think he's, you know, on the whole, he's a much better player than Marcus. And that's not to take anything away from Marcus, because I think, you know, Marcus really proved last year that he belongs in the rotation of a playoff team. And I think he proved to me last year as well that he's actually the better of the Morris twins, which I don't think anyone really saw coming. I think people had sort of pegged Markeith as the superior player, but to me it's Tobias, and it's Tobias for a number of reasons. The first one is um, his offensive game is, in my opinion, just about the perfect fit next to Andre Drummond. We saw an uptick in his three-point shooting percentage when he joined the roster last year, and I'm hoping that's a, a genuine improvement and has to do with the way he was used in the system, so hopefully that's a consistent upgrade. The other thing that he can do, in addition to stretching the floor is he can put the ball on the floor. Um, you know, we, we saw that a number of times Reggie penetrated, kicked it out to Tobias who you know, was able to get a shot fake up and then get to the basket and then finish. So he's able to handle the ball and he's able to produce offense off of the dribble. And then the third thing he can do, uh, which I don't think we saw a lot of last year because he was acquired in the middle of the season and there wasn't a lot of time to prep these sorts of schemes, but he's got the ability to be the ball handler in the pick and roll and not just a pick and pop guy if you choose to use him, right? So he's not just the screener. He can actually be the ball handler. So I think for those three reasons, uh, he's a very, very valuable offensive player. And, you know, again, not to take anything away from Marcus, but to me, he's sort of the X factor for the Pistons this year. Right now, he's the third guy. If there is a big three, it's Reggie, Dre, and Tobias uh, because of just how potent he is offensively. Uh, And I think if you haven't, for whatever reason, read Steve Hinson's preview of Tobias, 
uh, on DetroitBadBoys.com. Go do that. He's got an awesome visual there, a little pie chart of the ways that Tobias was used offensively and the way that Tobias got his points as a Piston last year. And it's remarkable. The versatility on display there is absolutely remarkable, especially for a guy that you can line up in the in the power forward slot. So to me, it's Tobias by, by quite a long shot. I think he's, he's going to settle into that stretch four position really well in SVG's system and, and prove that he's probably the Pistons' best overall offensive player this season. Yeah, I think there's a real possibility that he could be. I was so surprised with the return in, in terms of production, what we got out of him after that move at the deadline. Uh, I think averaging 16 and 6 when you're new to a team like that, it shows that there is a ceiling there for a player who's still young and I think can give us even more. And that's probably why many fans were a little too hard on Tobias Harris in the playoffs because in the regular season, while a small sample size, I think everyone really loved what they saw out of Tobias. Uh, But Ben, I have to ask you, just in terms of the numbers, that three-point shooting, do you expect that to remain close to what we saw last year with the Pistons? Uh, Because in his career, I know it's been closer to 33% uh, while he gave the Pistons a little better than that. He's been all over the map, and that's one of the things about three-point shooting. If if you're ever bored sometime, go into basketball reference and um, look up guys who you think are the best three-point shooters in the history of the NBA. And even the best, like, you know, the Reggie Millers of the NBA, their three-point percentages bounce all over the place. It's one of the things about three-point shooting is it's just not always 100% consistent from year to year. So, yes, last year with the Pistons, he did shoot his career-best 37%. And, yes, his career average is lower than that. But he did shoot uh, 36% one year in Orlando. The year before that, he only shot 25%. So, it's been all over the map. So in terms of expectations, it's not a given that he's going to shoot 37% again. But I don't think it's unrealistic to think something like 35% is what he could average over the course of his career in Detroit. And to pivot a bit and bring Marcus Morris back into this conversation, uh, with Marcus and Tobias, we have two players that are probably, if, if we look at the rotation from last year and apply it to this upcoming season, averaging in the you know, 32 to 36 minute range per game. Sean, are you comfortable with that uh, type of minutes, at least for the distribution in the forward spots with Marcus and Tobias getting close to 35 minutes a game? I, I would want to see it a little less only because I think there's, um, I think the Pistons owe it to themselves to carve out time for John Luer as a backup that plays significant minutes at the four spot and maybe even the five spot as a big man who can rebound and play hopefully passable defense and shoot the three ball at a rate that's probably a little higher than uh, Tobias Harris. So I I think I agree with uh, Ben about Tobias with his game and his role, and I hope that he essentially, when he's on the floor, he is the number one offensive option for the Pistons, uh, working around that Reggie Jackson, Andre Drummond pick and roll. But I don't think... uh, that you, you need to expect Stan Van Gundy to lean on them quite as much as he did last year because he has that increased depth and increased versatility, especially at that four spot. And you're right that John Luer could demand minutes if he steps in and takes advantage of the opportunities he's going to be given with the Pistons. Uh, I, I love what Luer could be as a pick-and-pop player and also defensively being able to guard fives and, and maybe giving us some small ball looks. Uh, I just like the versatility with John Luer off the bench. Sean, did you like uh, the signing of John Luer? I know that contract number caught some people's attention. Are, are you comfortable with him and what he's making for the Pistons? I actually love the signing. Luer was one of the players in the offseason I thought the Pistons should target. And uh, specifically for, well, I guess a couple reasons. One, I think obviously the Pistons needed to have a power forward with three-point range. Uh, when you're talking about Stan Van Gundy's teams and losing Ursan and losing Anthony Tolliver, it made sense to bring someone to fill that role. But also, um, last year when you saw the Pistons struggle a little bit, you saw it especially at guarding fours and fives who were athletic and had some range. Tobias Harris can sometimes look like he should definitely be playing small forward when he's has really tough mas- matchups at the power forward yes. spot. And then Marcus Morris, he's a real beefy guy, but he doesn't have that length. So 
you needed somebody with some length and some athleticism to run some players off the perimeter at the four and also hopefully not be giving up too much offense, not be giving up a lot of rebounding. And that's exactly what you see in John Lure. So I expect him to actually play a major role with the Pistons. And I think he could really be the Pistons X factor this year as far as somebody who has a a major surprise contribution to the team. And I even think he, um, speaking about crunch time lineups and where does that offense come from, how do you work in Ish Smith as your starting point guard, I think one of the ways you can alleviate that is uh, playing John Luer and either at the five or the four as somebody who can knock down those perimeter shots that hopefully Ish Smith can create off that pick and roll. Ben, I wanted to ask you about... John Lure working with that second unit because uh, so often last year we would talk about the lack of shooting on the bench. And it seems that in adding a player like John Lure, we may have found a, a plus shooter for his position. Uh, you know, we've talked a bit about the shortcomings with Ish Smith, but it seems that his role could help to give John Lure some great looks. Are you warming up to how this bench is going to play this season, Ben, or do you still have some questions uh, about the bench unit? Well, I think the two and three are the are the shortcomings, but I'm actually really excited about the four and the five. I think we have more talent than we have minutes, which is a good problem to have, I think, in the context of, of the roster we have put together. I'm also really high on John Lore. Um, all of the same reasons that Sean just detailed. Um, I'll throw out a couple of the numbers to me that really impressed me as I was doing a little bit of research for the episode. So uh, career 37% three-point shooter. That would be good for a shooting guard, much less a stretch 4-5. So of players who are 6'10 or taller who played in the NBA last season and took more than three point three three-point attempts a game, Lure was actually 12th overall in the entire NBA in three-point percentage. So he's literally one of the best shooting big men in the entire NBA, uh, and that's a fantastic skill set to have uh, coming off the bench. So first reason I love him, he's a fantastic shooter. And yes, I think that's going to help Ish Smith quite a bit. Second thing I love about John Luer is that he's a fantastic rebounder. Because he's a stretch big man, that you don't really see that show up in his offensive rebounding numbers. But in terms of his defensive rebounding numbers, he will actually be, by defensive rebounding percentage, which for those who aren't familiar, it's an estimate of how many defensive rebounds a player gets out of all of the available rebounds while they're on the court. He'll be the second best defensive rebounder on the roster, better than Aaron Baines and and better than um, any of the other power forwards who are on the roster. So just for some context, last year Drummond, the best rebounder in the entire NBA, his defensive rebounding percentage was 34%, which is just crazy. But John Lures is 26%, which is absolutely fantastic for a guy who's a stretch big. And so often, if you bring a stretch big, you're adding shooting, but you're compromising on rebounding. With Lure, that's not the case. So you get one, you get shooting. Two, you get really fantastic uh, rebounding, especially on the defensive end of the ball. And then third, I totally agree with Sean. I think uh, there's some really interesting and scary small stretch big rotations that we could throw out, especially when we get healthy, that include uh, Lure and Tobias at the four and the five. And you sacrifice a little bit defensively, so this is not a unit you're going to play for huge minutes. But especially in crunch time when free throws matter and when open shots matter and when you absolutely have to get defensive rebounds, uh, Lure might be a really interesting and sneaky option there at the five because you're not sacrificing rebounding. You're gaining floor spacing for guys like Reggie and for shooting. And then you've got guys who can hit free throws in the four and the five, so there's no hackadre to be worried about. So I'm super excited about John Lure. I think... He he's better than any of the power forwards we've had. Is there a chance that he plays himself next to Tobias Harris and Andre Drummond in the front court, or is that is that too big? <laughs> I guess I, I know we've talked a bit about some of the issues Tobias has defensively, and with I, Tobias I think at he the could three, play a bit at the three, uh, and we've seen how That's they kind of you know will look at matchups and play Marcus and well, uh, Tobias like that. So. Do you think there's a chance we could see something? The thing about it being a full-time starter is that I, I do think there are clear scenarios in which Tobias is a, negative, a net negative on the perimeter defense. There's times when he's better at the three, and there's times when he's worse. Sure. So I think that's a really intriguing option as a part of your rotation, but I'm I'm not sure that it makes sense as a 
like a full-time starting unit. I don't know, Sean, what do you think of that? It's a really cool idea, though. I think I'm more in line with where you're at, Ben. I think mm-hmm. Sam and he traded for Tobias Harris to make him a power forward. I think he's a kind of Stan Van Gundy power forward that you've seen before. He knows what you get offensively from that. He knows that uh, he wants perimeter shooting, and the way that Tobias Harris was able to convert last year was by having an abnormally large amount of open looks. You get many more of those at the power forward than you would at the small forward position. Sean, what are your expectations for Stanley in his sophomore season? Well, hopefully he just improves increment well a little more than incrementally at the offensive end he just didn't show you much there last year he's a rookie so obviously uh, that can be expected Um, what you saw was a player who was playing a lot of minutes because he was really providing a lot on the defensive end and he had the skills and sort of that basketball IQ to do a lot of the right things with the ball but he didn't understand NBA defense's or the speed of the game to always convert those opportunities or sometimes he tried to force things a little bit because he was thinking about how he had been defended probably in college. So now that he's more familiar with the speed of the game, I think you're going to see better decision-making out of Stanley Johnson. I think you're going to see a more efficient offensive game. I don't think you're going to see maybe a reliable knockdown three-point shooter, but he's going to provide that great defense for the on the perimeter or with um, small fours that cause a lot of havoc, like the LeBron James that you saw in the playoffs. If something clicks in his game on the offensive end, do you think it's going to be finishing at the rim or as a shooter? What do you think comes first for Stanley? Well, actually, I totally agree with Sean, and, and I think it has to do with instincts and habits. I think Sean is exactly right that Stanley put himself in some really good positions with the ball in his hands last year. He showed the ability to be able to get by his defender, but then he would jump in the air with no clear plan of what to do. Am I going to shoot? Am I going to pass? I have no idea, and I end up committing a turnover. So to me, I think part of that is it's habit and instincts. And and when you understand the speed of the game and when you understand defense, as Sean was just unpacking, you stop thinking when you're in those situ- in those scenarios and those situations, and you start reacting. And, and last year, his instincts were wrong because he was used to high school and he was used to college. This year, and maybe this is sort of what he was sort of experiencing during the summer league this year, is you know as you as you improve and as you face new competition, you develop new habits and your instincts change. And so when you get two, two you know when you put the ball on the floor for two dribbles and you're all of a sudden in the heart of the defense. You don't jump in the air because you don't know what you're supposed to do. You sort of have an intuitive sense of what you are supposed to do, and then you react instead of overthinking. So that would be my hope for Stanley. And I I think the second unit, uh, in the absence of Reggie Jackson promoting Ish to the starting lineup, there's going to be a need for some ball handling. Uh, So let's move on to the big men. I know we've talked a bit about John Luer and the intrigue we have for playing him in some small ball lineups, but let's talk about some of the big men. And Ben, I think you're right that it just doesn't seem there's enough minutes to go around for some of the players we have at the four and five, which is a blessing. And hopefully it it works itself out. Uh, But let's start with the two that are fighting behind Andre Drummond, and that's Aaron Baines and Boban Marjanovic. Do you see the minutes working themselves out, Ben, between those two players? Early in the season, I think I'd be surprised if Boban gets a whole lot of playing time. Um, I think... Boban, and I know Sean's going to help us preview Boban a little bit, but I think Boban was kind of a flyer. Like, you see a guy who's really intriguing with a very unique physical set of tools, and you bring him on to see what he's capable of doing in the context of an 82-game NBA season, because that's the real question. Are these monster permanent numbers sustainable? And if so, to what degree and for how many minutes over the course of an 82-game season? With Aaron Baines, by contrast, you've probably got a little less intrigue you really know who he is and what he's capable of. And what he's capable of is being a reliable backup big man. But, you know, then he also rebounds and he works hard on defense. And he's sort of that blue-collar guy that Pistons fans always rally around and, and always love. So, you know, my sense going into the season is that Aaron Baines is the backup center. And I would expect him to get the majority of those minutes. But I do think if, if Boban's body holds up and if there's an opportunity to train Baines... 
you've got Lure who can potentially play some backup five, and maybe Bulban who can play some backup five. So maybe in the second half of the season, uh, we see a little more of that. Obviously, if there's a trade, we will see more of that. But to me, I think Baines is the backup going into the season. And, and Bulban, if his body holds up and if his offensive game uh, is as good as it has been in garbage time, then maybe he steals some of those minutes later in this the season. The other thing with Bulban, I think, is that there are times in which he is a complete liability on defense. There's times when it's a plus when you're playing against a team with a traditional center, but there are matchups in which, you know, the Pistons and Cavs, as one example, when can you even get Bulban in the game? Well, I guess I would just take a step back and ask both of you, what do you think Aaron Baines does better than either of, what is he best at, even among the three players vying for that backup spot? So, I mean, I think uh, John Luer is a better shooter than Aaron Baines, and I think Boban is a better free throw shooter and rebounder than Aaron Baines. So I'm starting to wonder, where does Aaron Baines really fit into this big man rotation, and how quickly could he get squeezed out of minutes? I think a lot of that depends, obviously, on how much Stan Van Gundy is willing to trust non-traditional centers like John Luer, who's on the small end for a center, and Boban, who's on the very, very large end, even for a center. But if he finds that trust in those two players, I think Aaron Baines could essentially lose his role altogether. Yeah, and I ultimately think he's going to get traded. I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. I will say, though, I, I do think there's a couple areas and a couple scenarios in which you would want Baines over Boban or Luer. I think you would want him against which is what is an admittedly small number of NBA teams who play a more traditional center uh, in their second unit. Because I think Baines, you know, Luer, I, I love his ability to get on the defensive glass, but I think Baines is stronger and he's a, he's a stronger physical presence who can bang against some of those bigger guys. And then I think um, his potential advantage over Boban is if you're playing a team. Um, and their second unit is predicated around the pick and roll, which is you know just about everybody. I think there's real questions about whether or not Boban can defend the pick and roll consistently. So Baines has the edge there over Boban. So, but ultimately, I agree with you. I think the Pistons have too many good players in the in the front court, and Baines to me is the obvious one who gets traded, even if it's just you know for spare parts in a future pick or something, you know, future second rounder. Yeah. So I mean, essentially, if if Sam Vanity is right in his assessment of John Luer, the player, and Boban as an actual contributor, and obviously we're talking about a player who played only 500 minutes in the NBA in his career, so the jury is definitely still out. But what he did on the floor in that time was, you know, otherworldly. So even if he takes a step... Right. it's like Hall of Fame-worthy permit. Right, so <laughs> even if he takes an expected step back, if he shows that he can be a legitimate backup center in the NBA, even with the negative of his lack of mobility going with the positive of his uh, incredibly efficient play and rebounding ability, then I think Aaron, I think he ends up taking Aaron Baines' spot as that backup big man. So the other thing that I was hinting about, and I just, I didn't state it clearly, is, you know, guys who are as big as Bulban have a really... I don't know, rough history in the NBA in recent years because their bodies don't tend to hold up. And it's not fair to judge Bulban by something that, you know, may or may not happen with him. But I do think if you're Van Gundy and Bauer, you're not, you're obviously thinking about that, right? So I think there's probably a little bit of hesitation to move Baines until you know that Bulban's body can handle the 82 game season. And that's kind of what I was driving at, even though ultimately I agree with you. I think. Lure and Boban to be make a lot of sense as your backup five. Yeah, and if Lure shows that he can hold up big minutes as a backup five, and especially since there's that numbers crunch at power forward, if you're thinking about Tobias and Marcus both being able to play that spot, I think it it becomes uh, a much more comfortable decision to say, okay, as that big beefy guy in the middle, I'm comfortable with hitching my wagon to Boban and maybe seeing if there's a space where we can trade Aaron Baines for some help on the perimeter, let's say. But if Luer proves that he can't, he's not up to that, then it becomes much less likely that Van Gundy is willing 
to say that my only backup center on the roster is really going to be Bovon because of that. Uh, and spoiler, I'm putting together a soundboard for the Pistons, and I'm deciding right now between which Andre the Giant clips I'm using, because we've got Bobon, who's a affable giant, and then we have an actual Andre the Giant, and Andre Drummond. Um, bad segue, but I'm going to go with it. So, I, I know going into the offseason, Ben, we had quibbled a bit about giving him that much money, uh, but now that he has the big-time contract, and he still has a ceiling that, you know, it it doesn't... I'm not sure if I know what his ceiling is as a player or, or even what type of player to expect from Andre Drummond in, in the next few seasons. If he focuses on certain aspects of his game, what do you want to see him improve at in this season? Just, just for this season, what do you want to see him improve? Yeah, so if I have to prioritize, right? I mean, he's the best rebounder in the game. And I, used, I tend to talk about basketball. There's offense when you have the ball, defense when they have the ball. And then there's the loose ball situations when no one has the ball. Andre Drummond is the best rebounder in the game, so he gives your team an edge when nobody's got the ball, when it's a loose ball situation. But then when it comes to offense and defense, I think you can make the case that while he's certainly good at certain things on both sides of the ball, it's not clear that he's really that that much above average, if at all above average, in spite of the fact that he, he did score quite a few points last year. You know, personally, I, I think after I really took a deep dive into the numbers this week and really sort of looked at his trajectory and his development so far, I see him as being most successful in the sort of DeAndre Jordan, Tyson Chandler archetype of big man as opposed to the Dwight Howard sort of archetype of big man. Now, it's too soon to make final pronouncements because... I think what we have seen in the last few years in the NBA is that you see big men becoming late bloomers on the offensive side of the ball. Um, You see guys, even with DeAndre Jordan, for example, after the age of 26, he made significant improvements to his offensive game. Um, So I don't think that the, the door is closed on him becoming a better offensive player than he is now. But just for this season, I would really like him to see, like to see him become the anchor of the Pistons defense because He's 6'11", he can jump out of the gym, he knows how to play passing lanes because we've seen him get steals, so he's got some instincts when it comes to defense, but we still see him miss rotations, or he's really late on a rotation, or he doesn't challenge a shot in a way that you'd think he'd be able to, given his height and his length and his jumping ability. So to me, I'd I'd really like to see him become an above-average team defender, uh, as the NBA level, that can really be the, the centerpiece and anchor of a better-than-average uh, Pistons defense and, you know, maybe get into that top, you know, 13-14 in terms of overall defensive efficiency because they were surprisingly good last year, especially at the, the start of the season defensively. So personally, that's where I'd like to see him grow. That's sort of the archetype I see as being um, best for his overall development because I think really his offense has not developed very much at all. Obviously, I don't think they're going to compete for a championship because there's too many points where you wouldn't be able to use the current Andre Drummond in a game to be effective. But I think you can be extremely good. I think he could still be at a borderline all-star level year in, year out, even if he doesn't improve his horrendous free-throw shooting, even if he doesn't develop a post-game because he is so good at rebounding the basketball, at uh, altering shots. Uh, He's not a great defender in the post, but he's made those strides from his first season in the league, so he's uh, not completely lost there. Uh, So he's still a huge impact player, uh, even today, with all those uh, holes in his game. And you're just hoping that he can take those incremental steps, because that's what's going to change him from being a star big man to a superstar big man. And so uh, the jury is certainly still out. You look at a player like Hassan Whiteside in Miami, he's, you know, people think that um, he's this young player that's exploded on the scene in Miami. He's 27 years old. Andre Drummond is 24. Uh, His his last season in the NBA before he went overseas, Whiteside shot 41% from the free throw line. Last season he shot 65%. Now, I don't think... In a million years, there's any way Andre Drummond's going to be a 65% free throw shooter. But 
We've said it a million times. All he needs to do is to get around that 50% mark, and you can't follow him intentionally and still try and win the game. Uh, Stan Van Gundy will have almost no reason to take him out of high-pressure situations, and, and that's what he needs to work on. So to your original question, um, I say even though he does need to prove as a defender, if he can improve that free-throw shooting, it makes roster construction and uh, balancing the lineup so much easier on Stan Van Gundy if he can get to that 50% mark. Well, before the Reggie Jackson injury, I was thinking that this team had a very good chance to win about 48, 49 games this season. I I don't think they're going to take a huge step back from Reggie Jackson to Ish Smith, only because I think the reasons that Reggie Jackson are so is so effective, Ish is going to be able to recreate a lot of that, uh, especially with a, a more effective supporting cast. So even with that Reggie Jackson injury, I still think the Pistons are a team that can win 46 games. Yeah, I mean, Reggie Jackson being out, I think... I would be very happy if, if they win 45 games. I think Sean is right. I think Ish is going to be able to do a lot of the distributing stuff that Reggie did last year. I think the big drop-off is you're going from your second point guard to your third point guard. And I think, you know, I was happy about Ray McCallum as a third point guard. I'm a lot less happy about him being a backup point guard. So, you know, if Ish can somehow play 34 minutes a game and be productive for those 34 minutes... You know, maybe 46 wins is still possible with Reggie missing 20. I want to see the offensive responsibilities and how they're doled out. I want to see, you know, Stan Van Gundy traded for Tobias Harris midseason. He fits seamlessly. Now he's had a whole offseason to really incorporate Tobias's diverse offensive skill set into his offensive right. system and game planning. What does that look like day to day? And uh, how far can you get with a point guard that can't shoot, really? Because <laughs> if, if the Pistons can manage to win games with a, a point guard who's not a threat at all from the perimeter, then this team has a very high ceiling. Sean, that's a perfect note to leave off on. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and for all your contributions on the Detroit Bad Boys. You do an awesome job on the site, and uh, I was glad to have you on. Yeah, anytime. And just let me, uh, if I could, special shout-out to Steve. Ben mentioned one of his uh, great profiles earlier. He really spearheaded the uh, player preview project for the team, and we had a lot of contributors, but uh, it definitely wouldn't happen without uh, Steve. Absolutely. Big shout out to Steve Henson. He does a great job as well. Did a great job on the player previews uh, throughout the offseason. And now that the season is upon us, Ben, I know you're looking forward to it. But Ben, you're also looking forward to the birth of your first child. So for fans of the podcast, please make sure to congratulate Ben in the comments. But also look for more voices to replace Ben on those few weeks when he starts to parent. And with that, I hope I leave you ready for the start of the NBA season. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been another episode of the Detroit Bad Boys Podcast. Oh, that's why